All right, now the second thing, and I, and I even hate to bring this up, but uh, before we dive into the scriptures, um, we have somebody who is anonymous, anonymously mailing members of our church uh, with uh, some really serious accusations against me. And um, I know it's, it's shocking. This stuff never happened in the New Testament. You know, it's just totally. So, so I, I want to I spend just a few minutes uh, because I want to save these people some postage. Because it, it looks like what they're doing is they're going through an old church directory and they started in the A's. And I'm now hearing from B's that are saying, hey, do you know this thing's being out there? So, so let me read it to you. And, and then let me tell you um, what we're going to do in response to it. Dear brothers and sisters... Enclosed, you will find some disturbing information about a very powerful movement permeating our Christian churches, education system, and society, especially politics. We believe it is vital for you and your family's spiritual development to understand and be aware of the emergent movement, which is promoted by leaders in what is called the emergent village. This is a dangerous, postmodern, secular, humanistic movement that dumbs down and universalizes the gospel of Christ. Read the following and or watch the following videos for a better understanding. And then there are some links. This packet especially draws attention to how Evie Free Fullerton and Mike Erie are being affected and influenced by this deceptive movement. However, if you take time to do your own research, which we highly suggest, you will find an abundance of information on the web, which you can always trust everything on the internet and in many books on the subject. Our only goal is to bring awareness. The emergent movement has been active for the past decade or so, and we are just now hearing of it and its power. Our guess is that you never heard of it until now, which is of great concern to us. You will hear the gospel with a new twist and direction, a direction that seems right, but with closer examination becomes clearly wrong. May God bless you with truth. May the church bless, uh, may God bless the church during these last days. And then it's signed, The Watchman. Ooh. Ooh. So... And then, and then there are like 13 pages of articles about a book I wrote called Death by Church, which, you know, it's not shocking some church people would be upset with it, but um, you remember the Scary Mary thing that I showed? It was the recutting of Mary Poppins to look like a completely different thing. Okay, so they did the Scary Mary treatment on Death by Church. And, and here's the reason I wanted to bring it your, to your attention. Even if you're here and you're like, I don't care about any of this stuff. Number one, it is important because in these articles I'm called a universalist, a pantheist, a heretic. Um, and, you know, I've been called worse, let me tell you that right now. But, but secondly, this is a really ungodly way uh, to do stuff. If you're going to bring accusations like this, have the guts to sign your own name. All right? Thirdly, no, 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 no. Thirdly, I mean, thanks. Thirdly, <laughs> I was upset yesterday about this. And, and let me tell you, I don't ever respond to anonymous stuff. But with this first hit, when my book came out in 2009, I was at a church called Rock Harbor. We did a two-hour forum on this. I wrote a paper on it, and I thought it was over and done with. When I uh, interviewed here, I met with several New Testament professors from Biola. And I said, hey, you need to know this is written about me. It's completely false. Here's the video. Couldn't find the video yesterday. The Rock Harbor changed their website. I've got some friends there who are working on finding it. So what I did is I took the entire last service to respond to it. And so if you're interested, you can go on our website. There's a little emergent church link. And that'll take you to last service's message where I hopefully, with some grace, I went through and responded to the specific stuff. All you need to know is there isn't a word of it that's true. Uh, and I hope that if you've been here for the last 18 months, 
um, you would get the picture that uh, the text is the central authority. And it's not me. I've never been a part of this movement. They wouldn't claim me. I wouldn't claim them. I quote people from the movement when they, when they actually say something beneficial, but I disagree with the vast majority of who they are and what they stand for. So you just need to know that, all right? So I don't want you to be surprised if you get an anonymous letter that's from the watchman. That was a little freaky. And I just wanted to address it because we want to be a family uh, and we want to be a community that handles these sorts of things well. Okay? Bless you. Go to Luke chapter 4. Now, what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to continue on. Remember last week, Luke chapter 4, Jesus came and he preached a sermon uh, to his hometown synagogue. And we looked at, well, why does it go from, yay, this is awesome, to let's kill him in a matter of a couple of verses. And one of the reasons was that he left off, he quoted an Old Testament text that was messianic and that talked about not only the anointed one bringing good news to the outcast and the marginalized, but it also talked about bringing judgment on God's enemies. And Jesus skipped that part. And he just talked about preaching good news to the poor. And remember, the poor uh, in Luke 4 and Isaiah 61 isn't uh, just the people that are the economically disadvantaged. It's also the people... Uh, that are outcasts and that are marginalized is the way that Luke and Isaiah use it. So Jesus proclaims good news to the poor, freedom from the captives, liberation for the prisoners, and now we get to see him do that. So he's told us what he's going to do. Now Luke records him proclaiming good news to the poor. So Luke chapter 4, verse 38. Nope, let's go 31. You feel like 31, folks, to me. Luke... 431. Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Now normally, how you would teach is that in those days you would quote from rabbis. So you would read the text and you'd say, hey, rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi so-and-so says this, and you'd quote rabbis. Jesus didn't quote anybody. He just quoted himself. So everyone, oh, this is interesting. He's, he seems like he knows what he's talking about. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! <laughs> what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So I would imagine that synagogue service was really more interesting than some of the other ones because you have a demon-possessed guy who's shouting this, and, and it's so interesting because Luke has set this up so that we, the audience, know he's the Son of God, but nobody else does, except demons, right? Everyone thinks this is still Joseph's son, but demons are saying, no, no, we know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. And one of the reasons why they're declaring this is not only the admission of his authority, but they're trying to gain mastery over him by shouting his name or his identity. It was one of the ways you would engage in spiritual warfare back in the day. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Now again, Luke is saying he teaches by not quoting anybody else, but he casts out demons without having to do this big formulaic ritual involving amulets and, and chanting and, and all of this crazy stuff. He just says, be quiet, come out, boom, it happens. This was rare. 
He had an authority that Luke keeps drawing our attention to. All the people were amazed. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits. They come out, and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Verse 38, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Uh, And we're going to meet Simon more dramatically in the next chapter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. So she got up at once and began to wait on them. Now, okay, 21st century ladies are like, of course. She's on her deathbed, and the minute she's healthy, she's now, you know, whipping up some dinner, you know, and all the ladies go, that's what we do. The men, they get a cold, they're out for weeks. We give childbirth, and then the next day we're at home cleaning. And, and that, that's not what Luke's saying here. What Luke is saying is, listen, illness like that ostracized you from the household and the community. And so when it says that she got up and waited on them, that's his way of saying she's now back participating in the household. So for Luke, healing wasn't just physical, it was communal. Because when you were sick or disabled or disfigured, you were out on the margins, and the restoration of Jesus, the touch of Jesus, brought you back into the center of the community. That's what he's saying in a very Jewish kind of way. At sunset, verse 40, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Now, this is so big. Because one of the ways to stay ritually clean is by not touching people who were unclean. And some of these diseases would make the person touching them unclean. But for Jesus, that's no issue. His clean trumps everyone else's unclean. Right? His power trumps everyone else's sickness. So he lays hands on them uh, and he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! <laughs> I mean, can you just imagine... Ah, it's so crazy how subdued this is. Yep, he's just casting out demons that are shouting to everybody who he really is. Sorry, I am the only one evidently that thinks that's (laughs) semi-funny. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. So an interesting question Luke's going to deal with is why doesn't Jesus want everyone to know right away? At daybreak, Jesus went to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. Now, you can see why, right? He's healing everybody. He's liberating captives. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the what? The kingdom of God to other people also. Now, This is where we're going to launch a little bit. In about half an hour, we're going to have the elders of our church, the prayer team of our church, some of the staff of our church around this room, and we're going to invite people to be prayed for for healing today. Because what I want to examine is the tie between the proclamation of something called the kingdom of God and the reality of people asking for receiving healing. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Some of us, even when you say we're going to do like a healing service, you just, you picture like what we see on the television with half the church falling over when somebody, I mean, it's just, it's, it's nuts. But what I want to examine is this idea of the kingdom of God. Because when you look at Luke, when you look at Mark, when you look at Matthew, Jesus is always talking about this thing called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a summary of a whole bunch of Old Testament promise, expectation, and prophecy. 
that God would decisively intervene again in human history to now be king again over Israel and through Israel over the whole world. That the kingdom of God has to do with the realm over which God rules. So the kingdom of God is just saying the kingship of God is near you. The government of God is near you. The rulership of God is near, near you. And this is the summary of Jesus' message. In the book of Mark, first thing Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's close by. It's accessible. It's available to you in ways it hasn't been previously. So Jesus talks about this. Now, put your theological caps on, all right? Because I want to show you Jesus talks about this in two different ways. Go to Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at five or six texts really quickly. Luke chapter 9. Good morning. I'll give you a heretic right in the chops. Luke chapter 9. Normally I want to be involved with anything that involves hair. But I can't say yes. can't say yes to this one. Luke chapter 9, notice, verse 11. But the crowds learned about where Jesus was traveling, and they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the... and healed those who needed healing. Now, what Jesus does is Jesus will very often proclaim the good news about the kingdom and then demonstrate that it's actually here. And one of the ways he demonstrates it is that he heals people. So the, the classic example of this we'll look at in several weeks is when there's a paralyzed guy whose friends dig a hole through the roof of a house and they lower him down in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And the paralyzed guy goes, anything else you want to do right now while we're here? You know, it's kind of hoping for healing. And Jesus looks around and he says, hey, which is easier to do? Heal the guy or forgive his sins? Well, the answer to the Jewish mind was forgive sins. Only God could do that. So then Jesus says, just so you know I have authority to forgive sins, I'm going to heal him. So the healing pointed to the reality of Jesus' kingship. Okay, so very often when Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to the poor, healing would take place. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter 11. Now, Jesus speaks of the kingdom as something that was present in his ministry. Put your theological hats on. Luke chapter uh, 10. Did I say 10? Don't listen to anything I say. Listen to what I mean in my heart. Luke. Well, let me see if there's anything in 11. Hold on. Yeah, let's go to 11. Let's go to 11.20. We'll skip 10. 10 is lame. 11. That's where we want to go. 11. But notice, okay, so Jesus, but, verse 20, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has what? Come upon you. Now, does it sound like he's talking about something that's happening right then? Yes. It's come upon you kind of presently. Flip over, if you would, to chapter 17. Of that, I am sure. Chapter 17. Okay, so five, ten more minutes. Theological stuff. 
and then pay off. Luke 17, verse 20. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because what? The kingdom of God is in your midst. So, Jesus talks about it like it's something already here. Would you agree? He also talks about it as if it's something yet to come. Flip over, if you would, to chapter 19. Now, this will apply to healing here in a second. Chapter 19, verse 11. While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people of God, excuse me, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So then he tells a parable about a king who goes on a trip entrusting his servants with resources. He's away for a while and then he comes back. Why did he tell that parable? Because some, some people thought the kingdom of God was coming all at once. So in at least two places, and there are others, Jesus says, hey, it's here. It's in your midst. And in this place, he says, oh yeah, if you think it's here all at once, no, no, no. Let me tell you a story about a king who leaves and then comes back. Or, or flip over Luke 21, verse 31. And then we'll go to Acts really quickly. Luke 21, 31. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and it's in the future, I believe, when this is written. Even so, when you see these things happening, verse 31, you know that the kingdom of God is near. In other words, Jesus talks about something in the future happening, and that being evidence that the kingdom is near. And then one last one, Acts chapter 1. And then we'll try to make sense of this, because if you're confused, yes, Yes. Welcome. Acts 1. So, Jesus meets with His disciples for 40 days after He rises from the dead. I don't know what they talked about. It had to be really interesting. But right before He ascends into the heavens, they have one more question for Him. Hey Jesus, verse 6, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, the kingdom of God meant... That God was going to be king over Israel. Israel's enemies would be defeated. God would be king over Israel and therefore king over the whole earth. But what had Jesus done? Jesus had come and been crucified by Israel's enemies and Israel's leadership. He'd risen from the dead, but he was keeping that kind of quiet. And so he says he's leaving and they go, uh, but there's still more kingdom work to be done here, right? And notice what he says. Verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So, Jesus goes around talking about something called the kingdom of God. What's that? It is the dome, the range, the place where God's will is done. So when we pray in Matthew, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's saying the same thing twice. God's kingship is the realm where His will is done. Jesus comes and He says, hey, that moment that all Israel's been waiting for when God dramatically intervenes again in human history, it's here. It's at hand. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he goes, and he's talking to people, and he's saying, hey, it's right here. Hey, if I cast out demons, it's in your midst. You don't have to go look for it, because it's right here. But then, he, to people who think it's coming all at once, he says, no, 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 it's not coming all at once. Let me tell you a story about a king who leaves and comes back. Israel goes, hey, are you going to do the kingdom thing now? And he goes, no. So Jesus talks about the kingdom as being now and being not yet. Now you have to, this is so unbelievably critical to understand the Christian life. What Jesus did is he took, see, the way the Jews viewed human history, oh man, this needs a diagram. Somebody went, "Uh uh-oh. The way the Jews viewed human history is like this. This is the evil age. This is the age to come. And then there's this one moment called the day of the Lord where God is going to do His thing, clean it up, set everyone free, restore Israel, vengeance on Israel's enemies, and boom, now we live in a new heavens and a new earth. What Jesus did instead was He turned this day into two days. The day of His first coming when He inaugurates the kingdom, and then the day of His second coming when He completes it and fulfills it. Do you understand this? So He took what the Jews thought was all going to happen at once, and He split it into two comings. The Jews thought there were going to be two Messiahs. Jesus said, nope, one Messiah coming twice. In the first coming, He comes humbly, and He dies for the sins of anyone who would call upon His name. In His second coming, He comes in glory and He initiates the judgment of the nations, the purification of the earth, the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth. Then those in Christ receive resurrected bodies who live with seeing Jesus face to face on a new earth doing human things forever. That's the picture we get of what we do forever. We're not with harps uh, in clouds with wings. Now, there is a place called heaven, but it's the first stop on a round-trip journey according to the Scriptures. So that we, however the new earth looks like, we have resurrected bodies. See, Jesus is the hint of the future to come for all of those in Him. So what was true of Jesus' body will be true of yours. We will have hair. (laughs) You won't ever have to dye it. That's a different topic for another day. But what I want, I want you to see, I want you to see the rest of the New Testament is wrestling with, well, what do we do now between the first coming and the second coming? What do we do now? Because they didn't, they didn't see this one coming. They just thought it was coming at once. But Jesus comes, He's risen from the dead. Unmistakably, the kingdom of God is broken into human history, but it's not fully here yet. It's an appetizer for the full meal to come. Now because we live in between the comings, the Scripture declares us holy because of what Jesus has done. Right? Identity-wise, you are holy. You are in Christ. Christ is holy. Therefore, you are holy in virtue of His finished work. But, I'm still a work in progress. I don't always act holy, do I? No. So I'm now and not yet. We sing psalms 
and songs of celebration. Why? The kingdom's now. Death has been defeated. And we sing songs of lament. Why? Because we still die. Our friends get stricken with disease. And creation still groans under the weight of sin. So we do both. You see, that's why Paul will say we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We grieve because we're still waiting for His return. But we grieve differently because we are utterly convinced that there will come a day when every single bit of evil and malice and jealousy and pride and lust and greed and anger and violence, every bit of disease, everything that has no place in God's good world will be excised from it. We believe that everybody will be healed on that day. And so we grieve because the kingdom's not here yet. But not as those who have no hope. Why? Because the kingdom's come and it's still coming. When we pray for healing, we're not surprised when God heals. Why? The kingdom's come. But we're not surprised when He doesn't because the kingdom hasn't come yet in all of its fullness. Go to James chapter 5. See, I think what Jesus does, and if we had more time, we'd look at it, is that Jesus, He says to His 12 disciples, hey, go proclaim the kingdom and heal people. And they do. And then Jesus says to 72 of His followers, hey, go proclaim the kingdom and heal people. And they do. And then in the book of Acts, what's the early church doing? They're seeing healings take place. And so I, I firmly believe that God heals today. I've seen it. I believe it theologically. But I also believe there are some times, and, and for, in my experience, it's been more often than not, that He chooses not to, or maybe He does so subtly I don't see it, or maybe He's waiting for some time in the future, or... I don't know. So I, I pray for healing all the time for folks. I believe that's part of my responsibility in God's kingdom. And I see this in James. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Anyone? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Anyone? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. That's what we're going to do today in obedience to this. We're going to anoint people with oil. We'll have the elders, pastors, prayer team of our church. And we're just going to pray in the name of Jesus. And then there's this great promise. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. Now there are some people that say, hey, if you don't receive healing, you don't have enough faith. And they make your faith the issue. Now, can I, stay un can I just state unequivocally, I, un I so disagree with that. That is not what this verse is saying. Because remember, this is the same Bible that includes Paul's prayer in 2 Corinthians where three times he asks, God, take away this thorn in my flesh. And God says no. See, the way I define God's blessing is the absence of healing. Often in the Scriptures... No, 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 let me restate that. That wasn't right. You ever have a moment where you're talking in front of 
1,500 people and you totally butcher the point you're making. And then your brain takes about two seconds to catch up to it. That was just that. I think God's faithfulness means the absence of suffering. The scriptures say God's faithfulness means his presence in suffering. Now there are times, and I've seen him heal. And there are times he doesn't. And there are times that Jesus says you've got to pray over and 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 over. And I don't know why. All I know is in obedience, I'm going to ask. I'm going to seek and I'm going to knock. But I'm not going to beat anyone up for not having enough faith. So, James says, the, prayed, the prayer prayed in faith will make you well. But then you have Paul's experience where God says no. Nope. And I've seen both sides of this. When Seth was born, Seth is our little boy. He's, got, he's five and a half. He has his own syndrome. We talk about him all the time. Three months before he was born, we found out he had that diagnosis. We started to pray for his healing. God, what are chromosomes to you, man? Come on. Heal the boy. So we prayed, we prayed, we prayed, we grieved, we prayed, we prayed, we prayed. And then somebody said, would you guys stop praying for his healing? Because God, God doesn't need Seth to be healed. Seth is going to be a healer. And I went, well, that's really cliche. Right? Until he shows up and we see God use him in the lives of parents who wanted to give away their child with Down syndrome, who wanted to abort their child with Down syndrome, who are terrified of having a child with Down syndrome, he is this this little prophetic witness against the powers and the principalities that human life is better measured in joy and in love than in efficiency and effectiveness. Right? So all of a sudden, he's healing me. I'm seeing him heal. Even the story we told last week, do you remember that story we told on the screens? The young lady that has scoliosis and 18 surgeries, and she's shocked when she goes to a foreign country to minister to kids who have that same issue, and she's shocked that God is using her so powerfully to provide hope. That's why Paul will say, with whatever comfort you've received, comfort others. So do I believe he heals? Yes! And I think our, that healing looks sometimes differently than what we want. Do I believe that there are times he doesn't heal? Of course! Everyone who dies prays at least one prayer for healing that goes unanswered. Would you agree? <laughs> right? So how do we make sense of this theologically? Simple. The kingdom's come, so we ask. The kingdom hasn't come in all of its fullness. So we're not shocked. So what we want to do today is we just want to, in faith, ask. So here's what I'm going to do. I believe healing comes in a lot of different forms. Emotional, spiritual, mental, relational. What Part of the pride of American churchgoers is that we hate asking for help. The problem is that that is the, precisely the basis for the entire Christian life. And that help comes not just from God directly, but from His people. So I want you as an act of obedience. Is anyone among you sick? Should I ask for prayer? Anyone among you estranged from someone you love? Ask for prayer. Any, anyone among you feeling oppressed by our adversary? Ask for prayer. Any, anyone among you struggling with mental illness and you'd love to be free? Ask for prayer. I believe we're whole people. 
And sometimes healing comes through medicine. Sometimes healing comes through participation in community. Sometimes God will use the great technologies that have been developed all around us. But it's more about the asking than it is the answering at this juncture. The humbling of ourselves to go before Him. It's the daring to hope because there are some of you who've lived with such affliction for so long it's just easier not to ask, right? Because who wants to be disappointed again? I get that. And yet, I feel compelled as we go through Luke and we see Jesus healing because the temptation is just to think, oh yeah, yeah, he did that back then. We're just, we're stuck on the other side. And I go, no, I don't think that's quite right. So, would you stand with me? I'm going to invite our prayer teams, our elders, our staff, our pastors to surround the room. We're going to be in all the corners and we're going to take 15 minutes and we're just going to pray. We're going to, we're going to sing. If you're somebody here who, um, who it's going good, if you're happy, what should you do? Let's sing songs of praise, right? Hallelujah. But would you pray for the people that you see wandering about? Would you pray for God's Spirit to be poured out here? Would you pray that God would bring healing to those that are afflicted? And then for those of you that want to receive uh, prayer this morning, would you be humble enough to ask? Would you be humble enough to realize you're not going to be judged for coming up and asking for prayer? We've either been there or we will be there. No one's going to judge you for that. But we just want to be obedient. And we believe that Jesus Christ still does this. We're not weird about it. We're not freaky about it. But we want to be obedient. So I want to pray for you, and then we'll just open it up, okay? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, my mighty God, we believe the good news involves our reconciliation to you, our reconciliation to each other, and we believe there are times that for reasons that aren't utterly available to us, there are times you say yes to a prayer, to a cry. We believe that you answer prayer, that James says you have not because you ask not. And so we ask. We believe. Help us with our unbelief. And so, Father, we just pray that you would minister to your people. We pray, God, that you would speak and that you would give us the words to pray. And, Lord, that we would be a bit of family today, recognizing, Lord, what binds us together isn't anything other than our shared humanity and shared faith in you, Lord Jesus. And so we just invite your spirit to move and to work. Amen.